Well, good morning. Let's stand together and sing. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, it is so good to see you. Uh, whether you've been coming here for years or whether this is your first time, we are glad that you're here. Um, if this is your first time, my name's Matt, and I want to welcome you. It's our hope that you feel um, welcome, that you feel right at home while you're here with us this morning. If you want to find more out uh, about us, the best way to do that is to take a second and fill out the connection card uh, in the seat back in front of you. And later on, when the offering plate comes by, uh, you can just drop that in the offering plate. Or also, uh, if you prefer, you can text the number on the screen and we'll connect with you that way as well. So once again, thank you so much for being here. Um, now this morning, we get the privilege to celebrate alongside Davis Rains and Eve Fruget as they display their faith in Christ through baptism. But first, let's watch this video together. My name is Eve Kaplan Fruget, and I am six and a half years old. 
my immediate family has four people. Me, my little sister, my dad, and my mom. I have four grandparents, and I have a lot of cousins. That you follow God, and you believe that Jesus died on the cross. you to do something and you do it. If he says not to do something, then you don't do it. To walk in the light, versus he is in the light, we know that Jesus is like cleanses us from all sin. My name is Ifuze and I'm getting baptized today. It's hard for many of us to put our faith in Jesus into words. It's especially hard for someone like Davis, who struggles with expressive language. When Davis was born, we knew there would be things he would have to work at more than others. We were quickly reminded, however, of things Davis would be able to do, perhaps better than we do, including love God with a simple yet genuine faith and love others as himself. Throughout his life, our family of faith at UBC has helped us as parents better teach Davis and his sisters about God's love and faithfulness. We see Davis's faith demonstrated through his belief in God's power to save and to heal. One of our favorite stories of healing came when Davis was seven years old. A routine neck x-ray led to a recommendation of spinal fusion surgery. After months of praying both for and with Davis, an additional x-ray changed that recommendation. For years after that, when we spoke of his neck, Davis would say, my neck's all better. Thank you, God. We also see evidence of Davis's faith in his concern and compassion. He cares for others so deeply that he laughs and cries with them intuitively and loves with a fierceness that comes only from God. He spoke of this with his sister in the children's choir musical two years ago and continues to recite it today. We love because he first loved us, first died for nothing. Davis's favorite Bible story is about a boy named Samuel who was called by God. Today, as a demonstration of his faith, and in response to that same God calling him, Davis is being baptized.
several months ago, David came forward and confessed his faith to you. It's taken a few months for David to get ready for baptism, so here we are today. So, David, I have a few questions for you. Ready? That's your first question. Here's a few more. Who is God's son? Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus. Who did Jesus die for? And where can we live forever with God? Heaven. Okay. Because of your profession of faith, it's my honor and my privilege, <laughs> get ready, to baptize you, my son and my brother in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? Man, what an awesome display of how Christ has transformed the hearts of these young people. And what a great reminder to us how Christ has transformed us. I love what Paul says in Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's stand together and sing of how Christ has defeated the grave for us and has given us new life. God, we thank you for the life that you've given us and thank you for the song of salvation that we get to sing. Let's sing together, church. God is able, he will never fail. He is almighty God, greater than all we see, greater than all we ask. He has done great things, lifted up. He defeated the grave, raised to life. Our God is able, and in his name we overcome. For the Lord, our God is able, yeah. Sing, God is with us. God is with us, God is on our side, He will make a way, far above all we know, far above all we hope, He has done great things, lifted up,
Grace to life, our God is able. In His name, we overcome for the Lord.
God, we do thank you for your love um, that you have lavished upon us and that you call us your sons and daughters. I thank you so much that you have blessed us with every blessing and every good thing. And I thank you for this opportunity that we have to give uh, this morning, to give that which you have already given to us as an expression of our trust and our appreciation to all that you've done for us. I pray that you would take these gifts and that they would do a marvelous thing for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, and I want to invite any children who are going to Kid Connect this morning to go ahead and make their way out of their seats to go follow Miss Tricia at this time.
Thank you, choir. Thank you, Tracy. Beautiful solo. I'd love to invite Sam and Janae and Natalie to come forward, please. We're going to do a special time of prayer. Uh, one of the things I love about that song that you just heard sung over you today is that it speaks to this hope and this promise for creation to be at peace. And that's going to be kind of a, a theme of our message today is this desire for peace. But one of the things that we see shared in the Gospels is that while we long for that peace and we long for that hope, we know it will not be brought to us until the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in every nation, to every tongue, tribe, and people. And so part of our passion as a church family is not just to long for the future, but to actually pursue it through this call to missions. And as we enter into the summer months, uh, one of the great things that you'll get a chance to see as a part of our church family and our commitment is a desire to relentlessly pursue this gospel and to take it to the nations. And so we've got this wonderful team of folks that are getting ready to leave this week uh, to go serve uh, the sake of the gospel in Africa for, for several weeks, what, three total at least, three weeks? And so they need our prayers, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray over them uh, this morning and commission them and release them to go and boldly proclaim this gospel. And so we're grateful for this opportunity. This, this opportunity that has come to us has really been something that Janae has been able to foster and, and pursue intentionally. She's been in conversations with the missions committee. And just earlier this year, uh, we endorsed this as an official trip for the UBC family. And so we're grateful that Natalie and Sam are going to go with her this year and continue to increase our partnership and our involvement overseas. And so uh, we'll have more teams to pray over. We'll have one next week. Uh, we have other activities uh, going on throughout the course of the summer where people are going to respond to God's call and take it to the nations. And so uh, we want to just bless them today, and I would encourage you that if you have time at the end of the service, uh, find them, extend your, your words of encouragement and your continued prayers to them as well. All right, so let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this uh, amazing opportunity that these three individuals have a chance to pursue and to exemplify to your church family what it means to respond to the call to go. And so we pray for continued provision for both Janae and Sam and Natalie, for all of those that are going to be uh, serving you in such a way that, that you would grant them um, your amazing provision. Father, whether that's the safety that they need in the journey, whether that's just the, the courage that they need once they arrive, the opportunities that they're going to experience in terms of sharing their faith with others, I pray that the people that they minister to would be enriched by their presence and that this would be a, a wonderful and tangible sign of the gospel. And at the same time, Father, that all three of them would be enriched by the things that they're going to see. And that this journey would draw them closer to you. That it would foster a greater love and devotion. And it would stir their hearts in, in immeasurable ways. And we as a church, uh, Father, want to just uh, follow their example. Uh, we want to be a church that is fiercely committed to the Great Commission. Uh, willing to do whatever it takes to take this message of hope to all corners of the earth. And so we're grateful for their example uh, may we follow it in, in a full devotion as we seek to honor you, not just with this opportunity, but with our whole lives. And so we thank you and we commit all these things to you today in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's put our hands together to support them in their efforts so you guys can have a seat. It's an exciting time of year. Uh, we've got a lot of things happening. Uh, we've got a team getting ready to go to Guatemala as well, and so we're continue, we will continue to put those things in front of you uh, as a matter of prayer. Now, one of the things that I guess I should uh, clarify in case you're sitting there wondering, it's a little bit of a different service today. 
Right? We've had the opportunity for these wonderful baptisms, which was awesome. Uh, we want to acknowledge that, and, and that kind of is taking the place of our standard children's message. Uh, but in addition to that, I'm up here a little bit earlier uh, in the service, and that's by design. So when I start to wrap up, don't start thinking about lunch, okay? We still have some songs to sing, a little bit of an extended worship after we finish this morning. Um, now, if you were going to rank the top five sports movies of all time, okay, because I know this is a question all of you have been dying to have answered for you, right? If you were going to rank the top five sports movies of all time, number five would be Hoosiers, okay? This is a great basketball movie that zeroes in on this little high school in small town Indiana and their improbable run to a state title uh, led by Coach Dale, right? I mean, it's a great, inspiring movie. That would be number five. Number four would be Rudy, okay? Rudy is the story of this never quit, never say die uh, walk-on who gets to live out his dream by playing football at the great University of Notre Dame. Number three would be The Natural, okay? Number three, The Natural is the story of this guy's natural baseball ability, Roy Hobbs, and the way that he transforms the New York Knights into relevance and into greatness. Uh, number two, as if there is any debate about it, would have to be The Sandlot, right? You have a chance to go see Little League baseball and be introduced to characters like uh, Benny the Jet and Smalls and getting to see them play Little League out on the sandlot. It's a great movie. Uh, but number one, top sports movie of all time, would have to be the rags to riches story, the one in a million shot for the Italian stallion Rocky Balboa to win the heavyweight title. Okay, I mean, That's easily the best sports movie. Uh, not only did it win an Academy Award, but they made like 18 more Rockies afterwards, right? I mean, it just kept on going, and it's, it's the name that I use that every time I go out to a restaurant, like that's the name that I give them because it was so influential in my life. So, so those are your top five, okay? You got Hoosiers, Rudy, Natural, Sandlot, Rocky. Now you could, you could disagree with it, right? You could come up with your own list. You'd be wrong, but you could do it, right? And I'm not saying that my list is divinely inspired but it's close, y'all, okay? And so if you haven't seen those movies, then I would highly encourage you to do so. In fact, we can just go ahead and make that the application for today, right? Yeah, yeah go ahead and pray, do all that other stuff, but go see those movies, right? Tell them that your pastor made you do it. Um, I love those movies for a variety of reasons. One is I'm a sports enthusiast, right? I love sports. Uh, I'm also a movie enthusiast. And so when you combine those things together, I naturally gravitate towards these types of movies. But what all five of these movies have in common is that they're very inspirational, right? They're, they're the great stories of these heroes and the protagonists overcoming some sort of obstacle, some sort of struggle to achieve greatness, right? It's this, it's this story of triumph over trial. Uh, take, take The Natural, for example, okay? Natural is one of my favorite movies. I remember seeing it growing up and just being enthralled with the story, okay? It was a, originally a book that was written in 1952, but then made into a movie in 84 starring Robert Redford, uh, Robert Duvall, Glenn Close, all those, all those great folks. And, and it's this story of Roy Hobbs and these constant trials that he has to overcome, right? I mean, it, it starts when he was a young boy and his father dies at an early age. And you see his father actually have this heart attack out underneath this tree in their front yard. And he, he kind of falls over and, and Roy sees him pass away. And so then he's grieving and like the next night there's this thunderstorm that comes and this lightning like hits the tree. Right, and splinters the tree. And so what does Roy do? He goes and he takes a piece of wood from the tree and makes it into a baseball bat. Because what else would you do with a lightning struck tree, right? And so he makes this bat and he calls it Wonder Boy and, and engraves a lightning bolt. I mean, it's just cool. I mean, it's a great way to start a movie. But then you see him 
kind of go into this early hype of his career. He gets derailed by this shooting accident. He gets shot, and so he's not able to pursue his dream of playing baseball. So he really kind of arrives on the scene as this 35-year-old rookie playing for the New York Knights. And, and they think it's a joke. The manager thinks it's a joke. They're like, what is this old rookie going to do for our team? And so they don't play him until finally he gets a shot. And the coach actually says, as, as Roy's walking to the place, says, all right, Roy, knock the cover off the ball. And what does he do? He literally knocks the cover off the ball, okay? And so their, their jaws hit the floor. Mouth, this guy can actually play. So they insert him into the lineup. Things start getting better for the Knights, and this is when we discover that the ownership of the team actually wanted the team to fail, and so they go and they try to bribe Roy Hobbs to start playing poorly. You can't bribe Roy Hobbs, man. You can't, come on, man, this is Roy Hobbs. Man, it's not Kevin Durant. This guy's got integrity and loyalty, right? So, so there's no chance there, and so he keeps playing well, and so they come up with another scheme, and they actually poison him, and, and so he ends up in the hospital. And when he's in the hospital, they discover he's got like all this stuff from this, the gunshot wound many years later that it's like eating away at his internal organs and they're like, man, you can't play, you're risking your life, which all leads to this climactic moment, right? It's the final game and if they win, they get to make the playoffs. If they lose, they're going home and so Roy has to decide, am I going to play the game or am I going to risk my health? He's going to play the game, right? And so you go to the game, all these additional subplots come out that make it equally dramatic or even more dramatic. I won't get into all those for the sake of time, but it comes down to the final at bat. Right, and so you can imagine, like, 10-year-old Jeremiah just, like, on the edge of his seat. It's, here's this final at bat, and it's, and it's down to the last strike, you know, and they're down by two. Roy Hobbs is at the plate, and it's the last strike, and you can actually see him bleeding through his jersey, right? It doesn't get more dramatic than this, and he's bleeding through his jersey, and all of a sudden, the pitcher gets with this face of intimidation, and he throws the pitch straight to home plate, and then everything slows down, right? Slow motion, and we see... Roy Hobbs give everything he has as he hits and he goes, and the ball begins to soar up into the stands and everything slows down. People rise to their feet and you see it get higher and higher until it actually hits the lights. Everything explodes and everybody goes, he did it, he did it, he won the game and everybody's jumping and celebrating and this is the story of the natural, right? Man, I just gave myself goosebumps. Anybody else, right? Music will do that to you. I, I kid you not, man, I went back. It's been a while since I had seen the movie. I went and reread the plot online just to remind myself of the details. I got goosebumps reading it off of Wikipedia, y'all. Like, I don't know if that says more about me or the movie, but it says something. Point is, it's a great story. All those movies have in common this story of triumph over struggle, right? And there's something compelling about that. And what we see in particular in every one of those stories and every one of those situations is that once that triumph is achieved, transformation occurs, right? The character is no longer the same. And, and so I bring that to your attention this morning, obviously, because this is a, a critical part of chapter one where we get a chance to see a very unique glimpse at the sailors, right? This is, this is the last time that we really get to talk about these sailors in Jonah chapter one. And I want to make sure we, we focus our time and attention on them. Because what we see is their own triumph over this storm. And once they experience this triumph, we can also see the transformation that takes place in their life. And that's something we all want to experience, right? We, we want to understand that transformation and change is possible. That no matter what we face, we too can find triumph over struggle. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 1. And let's revisit kind of what we've looked at so far. 
Now, in, in our plan, we're actually going to be focused on verses 11 through 16. So just about done with chapter 1. But before I get to those, I want to just quickly read through the first part of chapter 1 and, and use that as a little bit of a recap in terms of what we've talked about up to this point. <clears throat> so start with me in chapter 1, verse 1, before we get to verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This is where we talked about the, the word of the Lord being revealed, that God had a heart for the Ninevites and he wanted to see them to repentance. But then verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. We saw how we respond to the word of the Lord, right? That Jonah resisted. He runs away. And part of how he flees from it is by actually removing himself from God's people, removing himself from God's community. And so we ask that question, which direction are we moving? We're either pressing into the Lord or we're running away. But then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. This is when we talked about the fact that we all face storms in life. And how do we make sense not just of the fact that we have storms, but that sometimes God sends those storms. What we saw was that, yes, outwardly we may be wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving in us a glory that far outweighs them all, that though God may send the storms, they can refine us. He sends them not out of anger, but out of love, and we have the chance to, to reveal that love and to grow in our understanding of that love, which tells us every storm we face is meaningful, right? It's achieving something within us. So then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? For they knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. So last week we talked about how there is this moment of Jonah remembering who he was, his identity, his confession that I'm a Hebrew, and his devotion to the maker, right? The Lord, the, the maker of the sea and dry ground, and how we get to rejoice in the sovereignty of our God. So all these things have transpired, and now we get a chance to, to wrap up through 11 through 16 by taking a closer look at the sailors who have been through the storm with him. Starting in verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Okay, I love this passage, and I love the story of the sailors and what I believe it can teach us. And it, it begins here in verse 11 <clears throat> with them asking the question, what do we need to do? And that, to me, is a, a question that all of us ultimately arrive at at some point when we go through the storms of life. 
If you think about it, up to this point, the sailors have tried everything, right? They've cried out to their own God. They've thrown cargo over the ship. They've cast lots. They've done everything. And this is a question that reveals the helpless state that they find themselves in, right? They're in the midst of the storm. Nothing is working. And so they're asking, what can we do? It's this moment of desperation. It's this moment of helplessness that all of us tend to arrive at at some point or another. What do I need to do? Now, specifically, what they're asking for is, what do we need to do in order for the sea to grow calm? I love this question because that word calm literally means peace, right? Stillness, a cessation of strife. And so essentially what we have is this this wonderful metaphor for you and I to see that when we encounter the storms of life, the question that we often find ourselves asking is, what can I do to find peace? You know, peace is something that we all desire, right? Maybe you're not sitting here today in the throes of a very difficult storm of life, but, but I think we can all admit that we all desire peace on some level, don't we? I mean, none of us woke up this morning going, you know, I really want my life to be chaotic today. I, I can't wait to have turmoil and strife. Like, we all try to move towards peace in some way. And so the question becomes, well, what makes it difficult to obtain? Where are our challenges in, in finding this peace? I think a lot of times the problems that we have in achieving or obtaining peace is that we, first of all, we don't really have a correct understanding of what peace is, and then we don't really have a correct understanding of how to pursue it. See, a lot of times we think peace is maybe just the absence of activity, right? It's, it's the opposite of busyness. I Man, I've just got so much on my plate. If I could just eliminate these things, then I could be at peace. If I could just take all these things off my schedule and just go home and watch golf all afternoon, then I'd be at peace, Right? Um, that's not necessarily what peace is. Peace is not just the absence of activity. It is the absence of strife, right? It is the absence of turmoil, but, but that doesn't always mean that there's just this stillness to life. A lot of times we also equate peace to happiness, right? That the only way I can truly experience peace is if I'm happy. And so, therefore, if I'm not happy, I'm not at peace. Or if I'm not at peace, then I, I must be happy. And, and that's not really an equivalent either. There are definitely times where we can be at peace and not experience the happiness that maybe we're longing for. And there are also times that we could be happy and not truly be at peace. So we have these these misconceptions that oftentimes make it difficult to know how do we obtain this peace that we so desperately desire. And then a lot of times we pursue it incorrectly, right? Uh, uh, The ways in which we often seek peace tend to come through one of two extremes. One would be that we just avoid Uh, any sort of conflict and turmoil, right? We kind of have this escapist mentality. Let's say conflict emerges. We we face a difficult diagnosis in our health. There's a breakdown in our marriage. There's struggle within our family. There are issues at work. And, And the way in which we manage that conflict and seek to find peace is we just pretend like it's not there, right? We just avoid it. Let's just not acknowledge it. If we can do all that we can to suppress it as low as we possibly can, deep within our souls, then maybe we can fool ourselves into thinking we're at peace. But that's not the way to live. Those things that we suppress will eventually eat away at us or erupt in some capacity. That's a false sense of peace. So we, we try to escape these storms with really no success. Or the other extreme is that we just go ahead and try to fight it on our own strength and ability. Right? And so we We encounter conflict, maybe there's issues at home, maybe there's conflict in relationships, and so we just go ahead and meet it head on, and we just try to overpower it, right? And we try to overpower it by intimidating others, right? We come with such 
uh, ferocity, that it just silences those around us. And so again, we think, okay, we're at peace because now nobody's objecting to us, but it's a false sense of peace and it's no real way to live. So we, we struggle with the conception of peace. We struggle with how to pursue it. And so we don't really know what peace looks like a lot of times. And so let me, let me give you a suggested image for us today. When we start to think about what is the peace that we should desire, uh, my first statement would be that what we're really talking about is having an unwavering trust. You think about Jesus in a similar situation, right? He's, he's on this boat with his disciples and a storm uh, emerges, right? And it's a fierce storm, a storm that is so violent that the disciples actually begin to fear for their lives. And where is Jesus? Sleeping. Completely at peace. And so they come and they wake him up and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? And so Jesus looks at him and says what? Oh, you have little faith. Right? This indictment on, on how little they trust. And so then he stands up and he calms the wind and the waves and his disciples are fearful saying, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? That is a picture that peace can function even within the storm because Jesus had an ultimate unwavering trust in the one who was greater than the storm itself. That's peace. The ability to rest at ease even in the midst of the storm. Think about it through the parable that Jesus teaches of the wise and the foolish builder. Right? The, the wise person builds his house upon the rock. The foolish builds their house upon the sand. And then what? The winds and the rains come. And the foolish builder, his, his or their house crumbles, whereas the one that builds it on the rock, it stands and it endures. Well, what we see in that parable are many lessons, but one that we should point out today is that the storm comes to both houses. Right? So peace is not the absence of the storm. It's the ability to endure through the storm. And so what we must do is not build our life on our own abilities, our own convictions. That's the foolish approach to life. But what we do is we build upon the rock that allows us to endure the storms with an unwavering trust. That's peace. Storms are going to come. But what makes this gospel, what makes this hope in Jesus so enriching is that it gives us the ability to endure those storms with an unwavering trust. And so we have this peace that is being asked for. That's the question that's been asked. Now here's the answer that Jonah gives. But Jonah says, well, if you want this sea to calm down, then you need to hand me over to God, essentially. Throw me overboard, for I know that it is my fault that this storm has come upon you. So essentially, let me just explain that to you. What Jonah just said was, you need to kill me. Like, you need to actually throw me overboard, knowing that that would result in his death. Okay, this was a very direct answer. Okay, this was a very hard answer, and it's one that, that shows us just the, the consequence of what has taken place here. And so it's, it is not to be misunderstood is that this was a small request. Jonah is eventually, is ultimately saying, this is going to cost me my life. You've got to hand me over to the Lord. And, and so there are a couple of things that I think are very significant about Jonah's response. This has numerous implications that I want us to consider. The, the most basic implication here that we can draw from this answer is that there really is no way to achieve peace without death. And that's a paradox for us, and I want us to unpack it a little bit, but but the only way for this storm to subside is going to require some measure of death. Now, now there are a couple of different ways in which we can consider that. Let's, let's first look at it through this particular lens where Jonah is clearly 
acknowledging the penalty for his disobedience. Right? I have sinned. I've been disobedient. My running away from the Lord, the only penalty for this is death. It's the penalty for sin itself. And it's a reminder that Jonah is saying, listen, I'm at fault here. I'm the one to blame. I must die as a result. Now, what I think you and I can take from that sort of confession is to acknowledge that when we truly desire to seek peace in our life in accordance to the gospel, it requires us to die to self. I mean, think about what Jesus has said. When he extends this invitation, he says, if anyone wants to follow me, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they must what? Take up their cross daily, deny themselves, and follow me. The only way to peace is through dying to self. We have to acknowledge that that willingness to admit our own sin, our own brokenness, and our own confession. Now, the other way in which we can understand this measure of death that Jonah is presenting to us is he's also saying, hey, let me be the one that pays the price. My death will bring you peace. And what we have is this amazing image, this amazing representation of one who is willing to die so that others might live. Time and time again, in a very unusual way, we're going to see how Jonah brings us back to the gospel, brings us back to and represents, almost foreshadows what Jesus is going to do. That With Jesus, we have one that is far superior and far greater than Jonah. But make no mistake that, that part of what we're seeing here is Jonah saying, I will die so that you can live. And so what we have here in this answer is a pretty robust statement. If I were to summarize it for you, if we're going to ask what is it that we need to do in order to find peace, the answer that we have here is we need to die to self and trust in the one who has died for us. Those are the two things that we must embrace in order for us to truly find peace, in order for us to truly navigate through the storms of life with this unwavering trust. And so what does that look like? Or what does it look like to die to self and to trust in the one who's died for us? You know, one of the ways, there's a lot of ways that we could define that, but one of the ways that I would suggest it to you this morning would be to say this. We have to get to a place where we recognize that it's not about us. You're not the hero of your story. Right? It would be really easy for us to read through Jonah chapter 1 and think that all of this is about Jonah. Right? To, To look at this storm and feel like that God has sent this storm to Jonah because he's frustrated with Jonah, he's frustrated, frustrated with his disobedience, and he's trying to teach him a lesson. It'd be real easy to look at it that way, and, and we can, but it'd be incomplete. Because Jonah is not really the main character in chapter one. God is. This is not a chapter that reveals Jonah's plan. It reveals God's plan. See, what is happening here, the reason this storm came is not just because of Jonah, but because God has a plan for Nineveh. And that plan is not going to be thwarted. It is not going to be derailed and sidetracked. And so part of what we have to recognize is that the storms that we face, believe it or not, may not really be about us. There's a chance that God has a far greater purpose and what he wants to achieve in you and through you than what we can even imagine and understand. And so dying to self and trusting in the one who has died for others means that we have to get to a place where we recognize, and this is not about me. This is about God and what he wants to accomplish in his world, in his plan, through me. And so we see this, this important understanding 
of what Jonah is trying to do in terms of understanding what this dying to self looks like. And so we have this, this amazing answer that Jonah has now presented to the sailors, and we have this question answered, so now all that's left is the need to obey, right? We need obedience. We need to see how Jonah is, or the sailors are going to respond. And amazingly, we have this answer, and what does it say? Instead, they tried to row themselves to shore. Now, this just is fascinating to me. Over and over again in chapter 1, we see the answer, we see God's call, only to see people do something different. And so the sailors follow suit, man, they, they disobey. They try to row themselves out of the storm. And again, I think there's, there's a lesson in that for us, is that a lot of times you and I will face the storms of life, we'll ask ourselves, how do we find peace? And we just try to do it on our own. Right? We just try to go our own way. We do it according to our own strength and our own abilities. But what happens? The sea just gets wilder. It doesn't work. Right? The more that we just try to rely upon our own abilities, the more frustrated we will become. And, and what really, I think, serves as a word of caution for all of us when we begin to consider this, I'd say this, especially for those that have been followers for quite some time. You know what this tells me? It tells me that it wouldn't be hard for these sailors to ask the question, get the answer, and still go their own way. Which tells me it is not too difficult for you and me to go our whole lives asking questions and getting answers and never obey. You can go to church your whole life and you can make a whole practice of asking great questions and trying to fill in your mind with all this intellect and getting wonderful answers and singing about answers and talking about answers and never do anything with it. That should ter terrify us all to some level. It is not enough just to play the question and answer game. We have to pursue obedience, right? We have to follow through with what God has asked us to do. And so the question becomes, why did they hesitate? Like, what was their concern with following through with what Jonah told them to do? Man, if I had been a sailor, I mean, I don't know for sure, but if I had been in the midst of this storm and all of a sudden Jonah's like, man, all you got to do is throw me overboard, I would have been like, done, Right? Like, I don't care if your name is Jonah, Jan, whatever it is, let's go. And I'd have him on my back. I'd be walking to the edge of the boat. So why are they hesitant? What, what's the delay here? I think if we could infer something from the text, it would probably be that anytime we begin to consider this call to dying to self and trusting the one who's died for us, would be that there, there, a lot of times there's this unexpected nature of what God asks of us, and it's often costly. I mean, think about it. There's no way they expected this to be the answer, right, to, to have to kill Jonah. That's not what they expected. And numerous times, you and I need to recognize that when God calls us, he calls us to the unexpected, <laughs> right? That you think about a similar story again where the disciples are out on the boat, caught again in a storm, and Jesus appears to them walking on water in the middle of the night. And so they're trying to discern if it's Jesus, and they say, is that you, Lord? And Jesus says, come out and meet me on the water. Now, listen. If you're in a boat in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, in the midst of the storm, what's the last thing you want to do? Get out of the boat. It's completely unexpected. And that's often how the gospel calls us. It's this unexpected request that's going to require us to break out of our comfort zone and do something different. I can't tell you how many times I've been trying to find peace or purpose or whatever it is and I come before the Lord and I say doesn't this look like a great way to achieve it we should go this way only for the Lord to say no I want to take you this way 
and it's unexpected. It's something that I couldn't have anticipated. And so you and I need to recognize and prepare ourselves that God is often going to call us to do that which is unexpected. And when he calls, it's not just going to be unexpected, it's going to be costly. I mean, essentially, what has happened here is, is they're going to have to take a man's life. It, this is, again, no small request. So there's bound to be some hesitation in doing this, right? This is a, a significant step that they're being asked to take. And again, you and I need to understand that is how Jesus calls us. How many times do we see when he's calling the disciples the excuses that people make? Well, I'd love to follow you, Jesus, but let me first bury my father. What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury the dead. Now, I took pastoral care in seminary. That's not exactly how they instructed us to talk to people that were facing those situations, right? But Jesus, he just, he brings it. Let the dead bury the dead. It is costly, right? The rich young ruler that says, no, I've followed everything. I've done all those things that you've told us to do. Okay, great. Now go sell everything you own. It's costly. It's unexpected. And so naturally, there is a hesitation to it, right? They didn't know how to move forward. And and I think with that hesitation, there was also a fear, right? They tried all these other things, nothing had worked. And so now they're seeing this unexpected cost and they think, well, what if this too doesn't work? What if we throw him overboard and, and nothing changes? And so they begin to pray a specific prayer, right? Lord, have mercy on us. Don't, don't kill us for killing this man. Don't, don't hold us accountable for taking this innocent man's life. It's an important prayer for mercy which is always a pivotal step towards transformation. Always a pivotal step if we're going to have triumph over struggle. And so they, they pray for this mercy. And what I think is really interesting about this prayer is how they refer to Jonah as an innocent man. <laughs> right now, for the reader, does that not seem a little odd? Because if, if anything, Jonah doesn't seem innocent. Right? He, he seems guilty. He's the one that's responsible for this storm. He's the one that's created this disobedience. So why in the world is he being referred to as innocent? Well, part of what we see is that the sailors would have followed a similar pattern that we do today, right? That there would have been a process for judgment, for trial, for condemning. And so now they're about to take this man's life without that process. He was innocent in their eyes. And so, again, we have this amazing representation of one who is innocent giving their life so that others might live. Once again, drawing us back to Jesus who was without, without sin, was perfect and spotless and blameless, was innocent but willing to give his life for the sake of others. It is only through his death that we find the peace that we so desperately long for. And so they cry out for mercy, and with that mercy, merciful prayer having been prayed, they throw Jonah overboard, and what happens? The sea grows calm. Put it another way, God is faithful. Uh, he silences the storm. And now they see that this God can be trusted. And with God's faithfulness, we see this transformation that, that as a response, what do they do? They fear the Lord, they offer sacrifices, and they make vows. Think about that, y'all. When we're introduced to these sailors from Joppa, we are told that essentially part of the reason that Jonah found them is because they didn't worship Yahweh. They were polytheistic. But now, through the course of this storm, they have ended in a place where they have actually seen him as the one to be worshipped, the one that they can offer sacrifices to and make vows to, right? The, the terror and the distress they felt initially has now been transformed into devotion and reverence. They have seen that it is worth sacrificing themselves to surrender certain things. They have seen that it's not just something you do in a moment, 
It's not just a, an emotional reaction. It is a commitment. They make vows to. They commit their lives to God. It is an amazing journey of transformation. And it is all achieved through this triumph over trial. And one of the things that I want to point out as we begin to wrap up is the, the progression in which it occurs. Right? It was them having to be obedient first and then being transformed. See, a lot of times I think we go about this Christian faith thinking that I need to be transformed in order to be obedient. And there is some truth to that. Right? The Holy Spirit equips us and prepares us in order to be obedient. But we need to also acknowledge that many times it's only in our obedience that transformation then occurs. And so if we just keep asking ourselves over and over again these questions and answers without really being obedient, then we're going to struggle to really move forward. And so we have to ask ourselves with all of these things, what is it, what is it worth to you? Right? If we desire to find this peace, if we're willing to surrender our lives to Jesus, what is, what is it costing you? Are you willing to make a similar sacrifice? What is it truly right now that's costing you to be a believer? Maybe another way to ask it would be, what's it worth to you? See, if we can't answer that question, what it's costing us, if that's not obvious, then it's not evident to others what it's worth to us. And so we have to be willing to pursue this gospel and this, this peace with the willingness to die to ourselves and trust in the one who died for us. That's where we find triumph over struggle. That's where we find true transformation. So let me, let me close with this. If you're here today and you desire change, let me remind you that this change is possible. In fact, let me just take it a step further. All of you here today should desire change. None of us walked into this room today arriving at a place where we want to be and where we need to be. All of us needs transformation. We must always aspire to to living this life of surrender. And so if you are in that place, and we all should be in that place, let me remind you again that it is possible. Let me point you to these sailors and say, you serve a God of transformation. Right? We serve a God who gives us triumph over struggle. It is this God that takes this middle-aged or older-aged man who is barren and turns him into the father of nations. Right? It is this God that takes this murderer with a stutter and transforms him into a prophet. Our God is the one that takes this shepherd boy and transforms him into a warrior king. He is the God of transformation. And we see that fulfilled essentially for you and me when he takes this babe in a manger and grows him into this divine representation of his being through which all change and all transformation is possible. That is now through Jesus that a fisherman becomes a disciple. It is through Jesus that a tax collector becomes a follower, that the woman at the well becomes an evangelist, that the one who has denied him can be restored towards love. It is through Jesus that the woman at the empty tomb becomes the first missionary to predict or proclaim the resurrected Christ. It is through Jesus that the persecutor becomes the chief architect of the early church. It is only through Jesus that the church, once maligned and ostracized, is transformed into one of the greatest forces the world has ever known. It is through Jesus that everyone, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, every tongue, tribe, and nation, every age, every background has the hope to find this peace that takes us from being broken vessels and transformed into humble saints. It is only through him that transformation is possible. And so let me tell you this today, church, if it's possible for them, 
it is possible for you. And he desires to change. He wants to transform you in such a way that his plan is accomplished. And that through his church, every single one of you, people can look in and see once again that through Christ and through Christ alone, we have triumph over struggle. And we have the beautiful power of transformation through Jesus our Lord. And so whatever it is in your life, may you trust him today with that unwavering trust. May you die to self and trust in the one who has died for others. For it's in his precious and glorious name that we pursue these things. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we are grateful for all that you want to do in us and through us. And we pray that today we would be able to truly be transformed and changed. Father, I acknowledge that there are many of us here today that have things in our lives that we need to surrender. There are many of us here today that are desperate for a peace that only you can provide. And so I pray that that peace would be found. Father, that it would be a peace that transcends understanding. One that is anchored in a full devotion to you. And so, Father, wherever we are in life today, we, we come before you once again grateful that you give us triumph over struggle. That you give us victory over difficulty. And so may that be something that is exemplified in our lives as we seek to glorify you and give you the praise and recognition that you deserve. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do now is continue to worship. Uh, we've got several songs to sing to, to hopefully encourage us to respond to this message of transformation that we've had presented to us through Christ. And so I'm going to ask that you worship as you feel led to worship. If you need to come forward for prayer, you can. But we will, here in a little bit, uh, towards the end of this set, I'll come back up and offer an official invitation uh, for any public decisions. Uh, but for now, let's stand as a church and sing and give worship to the God who changes us.
built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil Christ alone
His oath, His covenant, His blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. He then is all my hope and stay. celebrate that through the storm he is Lord, Lord of all. So we want to transition as we continue to sing this song into a time of response. If there is a decision that you want to make public, then we want to celebrate that with you. I'd love to invite Eve and her family down and Davis and his family down, if that's possible, to come join me up front here in a little bit uh, so that we can acknowledge them at the conclusion of our service. Uh, But if you have other decisions that you want to make public, uh, if you want to put your trust in Christ and, and truly surrender to him as Lord and Savior, then we want to celebrate that decision with you. Uh, If this is a place that you have been led to call your church home and you want to make that decision public, then again, we also want to acknowledge that in the presence of everyone else here today. But let us continue to sing the hope of having Christ be that solid foundation, the cornerstone of our lives. And as we continue to worship, if you want to come forward, then please do so. Let's continue to sing this song. Christ alone Weak made strong in the Savior's love And through the storm, yes, He is Lord, Lord of all In Christ alone, Christ alone in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne amen amen you guys can stay standing just for a quick moment let me have 